If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Salahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 22nd. Today, the race for a COVID vaccine and the ethical questions it brings up. Plus, finding comfort in think I had it-itis. There are at least eight candidate COVID-19 vaccines in clinical development. Since the beginning of the pandemic, there is one question that people have been asking over and over. When will we have a vaccine? You might recall in this committee that in January of this year, I said that it would take about one year to 18 months if we were successful in developing a vaccine. You've heard timelines from 12 to 18 months. You've heard maybe this fall some could be available. But, you know, we're just starting the testing of this in humans, and we need to get that information before we know the timeline, whether we even know if it works. Carolyn Johnson covers science for The Post. One way of thinking about it is that we are moving faster than has ever been done in history. Basically, on January 10th, Chinese researchers shared the genome of a mysterious new coronavirus that was giving people pneumonia, and companies sprang to action and started designing vaccines. And that has moved already into many clinical trials, which are testing the efficacy and safety of that vaccine in people. That is a remarkable timeline and like nothing we've ever seen. But at the same time, this virus has really shut down our economy. It's killed so many people and it can't come soon enough. So it's both going really fast and, of course, not fast enough. So all these estimated timelines of maybe this fall, maybe next year, those are still basically guesses, right? Like we have no guarantee that that's going to be the case. We have no guarantee. That's why we have to do science. So people are working in a way that they never have in terms of compressing steps that are normally risky to compress, which, for example... Making vaccines is really expensive. And if you're going to make a vaccine, if you're going to make hundreds of millions of doses of a vaccine before you even know whether it works, that's very risky because maybe you invested all this money and made the vaccine, built up a factory, and you might have to discard it if you find out there's a safety problem or it doesn't work well enough. Those are risks that we have been deciding as a society we're willing to take. But there are also steps you just really can't speed up. And those are putting the vaccine into the arms of tens of thousands of people and waiting to see if it protects them. Like you need to get that information before. And if we're lucky and if the vaccine 
works well, if the trials are designed well, we could get signals before the end of the year, some scientists think. Others think it could take longer. But in some ways, we're all just speculating because this has never been done. So for these companies that are trying to come up with a vaccine, what is at stake for them? I mean, obviously, there is this huge push globally to have something that could save potentially tens of thousands or even millions of lives. But but I imagine that there are also other pressures on them, too. I mean, there's money, there's prestige, there's all kinds of things attached to it, aside from the urgency of saving lives and reopening the economy. But they are working just in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we're talking about a scale of vaccination that we really have never done. They're, you know, they're talking about like the entire world's population. And we haven't really done that, you know, like the childhood vaccination effort is very large, but it's it's just every year, you know, babies get their vaccines. So this is just in every way a challenge, the manufacturing, the science, the distribution, finding ways to give it to people in countries that may not have as well resourced health systems is going to be an issue depending on whether the extent to which it requires special refrigeration. There's just so many logistical things to think about that it can become really overwhelming. And if there are entities all over the world that are working on this, are they working on this together? I mean, are they trying to kind of trade ideas just with the goal of getting this into the hands of people as quickly as possible? Or is this more of like an arms race between different companies and between different countries of wanting to get it first and wanting to get it before other countries or other places? It really varies. When you talk to scientists, they'll talk about how collaborative this has been and how it's a race not against each other anymore, the, the way companies might normally compete, but really against the virus. So that's really great to hear. But you have to layer on top of it all of the other dynamics in the world right now. And there is a lot of worry about vaccine nationalism is what they call it. What does that mean? Where instead of a tool of diplomacy, vaccines could be used for nationalistic purposes. For example, if one country, the U.S. or China, quote unquote, wins the vaccine race and has a very effective vaccine, they could use it to potentially vaccinate their own citizens first. They could have powerful kind of levers to exert on pricing and access for other countries and allies. There's all kinds of scenarios people are worried about. And because the world is already carved along nationalistic lines right now for other reasons, there's worry that the vaccine could be used as a powerful tool for whoever gets it first. However, at the same time, you are seeing a lot of cooperation. There are a lot of efforts to pool resources and kind of go to portfolios of vaccines because we're going to need more than one and we are going to need countries to share. And so people are trying to work on the frameworks for that, too. You said that we're going to need multiple vaccines. Why? I mean, a a vaccine isn't a binary thing. Like, it doesn't necessarily 100% work. Some vaccines might work better in, like, certain populations than others do. So 
it's very possible you get like kind of a, a whole array of vaccines. Maybe some of them are like 50% effective. Maybe some are 70% effective. Those would still be valuable. Like the flu vaccine, for example, isn't that effective, but it reduces your risk of flu and the severity of disease to like a certain extent. It sort of varies each year how effective it is. But that's still super valuable. And in this case, obviously, like who wouldn't sign up for a vaccine that's like reduces your chance of getting COVID by 50%. That would still be good, right? Like I think a lot of people would be interested in that. Of course, we want to shoot for like something really miraculous. But with all the different techniques being tried, you know, it's, it's very possible the first vaccines could be a little bit less good. And that as we learn more about this disease and the vaccine technologies mature, you could have follow on vaccines that were even better. But it's also just like a numbers thing. You're going to need many billions of doses. You don't really want one vaccine to hold all that weight. And that's why we have, you know, more than 100 vaccine efforts, because people realize if you place your bet on one, we're going to be really in trouble if if that one has some problem, if it doesn't work well enough or if there's a safety issue. So you just have to spread your bets and have as many tools as you can develop. And have there been any decisions made on how a vaccine could or would be disseminated in a way that is both comprehensive and fair? There are a lot of ideas being put forth about how to distribute it, how to share, how to make sure that a vaccine could be licensed so that it could be produced by other companies than those that invented it. But so far, it's all fairly nascent and no global public health experts that I've talked to believe there will be countries exporting doses before a sizable fraction of their own populations have access. And then how do these potential vaccines line up with some of the treatments that people are trying to develop for helping people after they potentially get infected with the virus? There are some that are antivirals that really just try to knock down the virus. There are some really exciting drugs that have just gone into their first human tests that use something called monoclonal antibodies to try and combat the virus. A lot of people are quite excited about that approach and the trials are just beginning. So there's a hope that by fall, we might have some better information about whether those work as well. And what are the risks of the fact that everyone is moving so incredibly quickly on this? The scientists and the regulators have so far been clear they're not going to let any vaccine into healthy people that hasn't been properly vetted. They say that despite the speed, most of the things they're doing to speed things up are like paperwork, regulatory things. That part doesn't increase risk to people. But where vaccine developers are concerned is that there might be pressure on scientists to come up with something that works and that the bar could be lowered for whether a vaccine is very effective or even safe. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. Early on in the pandemic, President Trump 
really promoted a treatment called hydroxychloroquine, an anti-malaria drug, and it was a very appealing idea. Wow, this old drug that has a long history of being used, so we know it's safe. Maybe that could be a treatment. But the hydroxychloroquine situation has become a cautionary tale for scientists because hydroxychloroquine has been a huge mess, and I'm sure it's going to be the subject of case studies about what went wrong. It was promoted before there was really any evidence that it worked. The studies have all been marred by different kind of issues. And so that is actually one of the reasons people are worried about the vaccine effort. The pressure to show something, to give people hope, honestly, could be used to rush a vaccine too quickly. And if that happened with vaccines, it would be catastrophic having clear evidence that it's safe and effective is is really necessary, especially for a product you're going to give healthy people. Carolyn Johnson covers science for The Post. Last week, the FDA pulled its emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. They said it's no longer reasonable to believe that the drug is effective in treating COVID-19. In the normal process of developing a vaccine, the final and longest part is called a phase three trial. And in the phase three trial, volunteers are given a vaccine candidate, and then they're free to go about their daily lives to see if that vaccine works, if it, if it can protect them from exposure. I'm Ben Garino. I'm a reporter on The Post's Health and Science Desk. It can take quite a long time to be exposed to the virus in your community. And there's also the concern that you can't be sure that someone who's been given a vaccine candidate actually was ever exposed to the virus. When we're facing a crisis like the coronavirus, there's some worry that we just don't have that time and people want to speed up development of a vaccine as much as possible. So how is that traditional way of doing clinical trials for vaccines, how is that changing now? So that's where this idea of challenge trials come in, where participants receive a vaccine candidate and then researchers expose them directly to the virus itself. There have been challenge trials in the past for diseases like malaria and cholera to test vaccines, but they've never been done before for a virus that doesn't have a cure, that doesn't have a rescue therapy. So if we are exposing volunteers to the coronavirus, even if we do it in a secure facility with the best monitoring and resources we have, there's a non-zero risk that participants could die. So 
So, so this seems like a pretty ethically tricky situation because obviously, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and so many people are dying and it does make sense to try to speed things along as quickly as possible and potentially save a lot of a lot of lives if a vaccine comes out sooner rather than later. And yet, on the other hand, is it ethically appropriate to ask someone to put their own life on the line, particularly when we don't necessarily know if that decision that this person makes will have a difference. There are lots of times when vaccine studies can't come to a convincing conclusion. So when people are asked to participate in a challenge trial, it's at no small personal risk to themselves. And obviously everyone would hope that it would move the science forward, but there's just no guarantee of that. So what would actually have to happen for these challenge trials to become a reality for COVID? And where are bioethicists landing on whether there is a compelling argument to be made that they should be allowed? So in order for challenge trials to take place, the virus has to be manufactured. So it's not like you can go out and collect wild coronavirus somewhere, manufacturers will actually have to make an appropriate amount of virus in a lab that can be distributed. And then the right amount of dosage has to be figured out. Uh, There also has to be careful site selection to make sure that we're drawing the, the right number of participants from the right locations. Facilities would have to be set up. There would be at least a two week monitoring period where participants would be at a place like the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, or some other high-level biosecurity facility under you know, really good monitoring to make sure that, that they're safe. And then some additional criteria that I think are really critical are making sure that there's engagement with relevant stakeholders so that the community gives its input and is able to air its concerns and researchers can address those concerns. Seema Shah is an ethics professor at Northwestern University's School of Medicine, and she has studied the ethics of challenge trials for a long time. She was recently part of a World Health Organization panel that developed a framework for what a coronavirus challenge trial would require. It's also critical in terms of finding the right site that the outbreak response is not compromised by what's happening in the research. So the research doesn't take away resources from addressing the pandemic locally. On the ethical side, a lot of that development comes into planning and preparing for the trial, making sure that there are appropriate safeguards in place, such as informed consent. And informed consent is this idea that anyone who volunteers to participate in a trial really understands the risks. And finally, payment is really important. So there's this debate about whether payment is something that unduly influences people and a worry, especially in the current economic conditions, that if people are paid for research participation, that um, they may find it hard to say no. At the same time, if you don't pay people, then they're asked to put up a lot of their time and effort and essentially subsidize the research themselves. And that's not fair. And who would these people be? I mean, who's going to volunteer and basically raise their hand to intentionally be exposed to COVID? Well, 
unusually, we already have about 28,000 people who've already raised their hands and said, yes, I would be willing to be exposed to the coronavirus. There is an organization called One Day Sooner, which came out of a group of friends and people who have already been involved with this idea of medical altruism. And uh, kind of through word of mouth, through Facebook, through some media coverage, people from all over the world have been signing up. We're all just people who wanted to put our names out there in the hopes of getting the ball rolling sooner and getting a vaccine out sooner to people. One of the volunteers that I spoke with who's willing to be a participant in a challenge trial is Lahua Gray. She's a 32-year-old product manager in Austin. I probably would be a good candidate because I'm young, I'm extremely low risk, I'm very healthy, and also I have the luxury of having a job that I can just miss for two weeks and that's okay. And, and for these people who are who are saying that they would be willing to volunteer, what do they say about why they would want to do this or why this seems like a sacrifice that they feel compelled to make? For a lot of people, it's this idea of agency. I mean, we've been told throughout the coronavirus pandemic that the best thing we can do for a lot of us is to stay home and be, you know, in our apartments, in our homes and and not go out. And while being socially distant and physically distant, we know is really helpful. I think for a lot of people, they want to be a little bit more active. This kind of, for me, is a way that I can directly help people get back to their livelihoods and their families and get back to being healthy and not being afraid to go out. For many people who have signed up, there's some kind of personal connection or someone, some family member that they were thinking about as they volunteered. Maybe that family member is immunocompromised or is older or in some other high-risk demographic. I worry about my grandma. I have a grandmother who has a lot of lung issues to the point that just a cold could send her to the ICU. So if she got coronavirus, it would be really, really bad. And so like, if I had to roll the dice for me or roll the dice for her, of course, I would choose myself. So how close are we to actually seeing these challenge trials become a reality? And is there something that needs to happen for that to be allowed? Like, would these trials need to get FDA approval or some change in in bioethics standards? Challenge trials have been done for other diseases. And as long as there is informed consent, there's nothing to say that they can't be done. But we are in in kind of uncharted territory here when we're talking about the coronavirus. So what most vaccine manufacturers want to see is the FDA giving the green light, is the NIH laying out some kind of protocol that that can be done. I have a hard time picturing challenge trials taking place with a vaccine manufacturer that steps forward first. Are there people who are seriously worried about the idea of these trials and who have come out against this? There are people who are worried about these trials. Those include groups that are doing other kinds of challenge trials, so challenge trials for influenza, who are worried if a challenge trial were to take place for the coronavirus and something would go really wrong, that might set the field back. 
part of the big question, especially about doing challenge studies, is what the public will think about them and whether they will undermine trust in future research in ways that could really be negative for years to come. And involving communities in thinking about the design and the way that information is shared with people and how risks are managed, all of those things could help diminish the loss of public trust and maybe even make sure that researchers are doing things in the most trustworthy way. You know, a pretty firm tenant of of clinical trials is do not harm your participants. And, and we're at a point where some ethicists have come to the conclusion that, well, we we could do this. And that flies in the face of a really long-held upstanding idea that we don't expose our volunteers to, to risks like this. You know, a lot of people ask me, why isn't it enough for people to give their consent to research? Why is it that review committees or experts have to say when a study can go forward? To me, the issue is that researchers have their own responsibilities about when they can expose people to risk. And they have to make sure that what they're doing is really worth it. Although there are over over 28,000 people who've now signed up to participate in a challenge study with a novel coronavirus, I still think that those people's lives matter and that if they are going to put their lives on the line, the study actually really has to have the potential to make a difference. And right now, with everything that's going on, it's too soon to tell whether a study could make a difference. And that's really important to make sure that researchers who may ultimately decide to do these studies are doing it in a way that's worthy of the public's trust and of the willingness of these young people to volunteer themselves to help all of us. Ben Guarino is a science reporter for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash resource. And now, one more thing. There are a lot of people who believe that they may have already had COVID-19, even perhaps before we were testing for it in this country. And think I had it-itis is this playful name for an emotional state that a lot of people are experiencing right now, especially if they've had any kind of illness before March. When we learned that the virus was here in America before people actually realized it was here, it made a lot of people not only wonder if what they had been through before when they were ill earlier this winter was COVID, but also hope that it was COVID because then they have a chance of maybe being protected by antibodies. And so it's this state of how, you know, no one really wants to get COVID-19, but everyone wants to have already had it. I'm Maura Judkis. I'm a reporter for the Style Section.
there are definitely a lot of people who have already had COVID who weren't counted in our official total, either because they were denied a test or their symptoms didn't fit the profile of what the test criteria were at that time, or maybe they were sick before a test could have been ordered, or maybe they were asymptomatic and they never even knew they had it at all. Some people truly were very sick this winter and they don't know whether that was the flu or something worse. But for some people who may have just had a cough or, you know, had the flu, we did have this very bad flu season this year. It's kind of this form of wishful thinking. People are hardwired to be optimistic about circumstances like these psychologically. You know, our brains will always look for ways that the best case scenario applies to us and minimize evidence to the contrary. And so it's just weird in this case because the best case scenario is actually having recovered from this incredibly serious illness. But there's this worry that if people believe they've already had it and they're immune, they might not take the precautions they need to take both to protect themselves and to protect other people. And we've also been told by the World Health Organization that there is no evidence that the antibodies protect you from getting the virus a second time. So having this positive antibody test is not necessarily the get out of jail free card that some people might think that it is. There is only a partial cure, I'd say, right now for think I had itis because the best way is to get an antibody test, and those are starting to become available nationwide. But the accuracy can really vary across the test, and that might leave people still feeling uncertain of either a false positive or a false negative. Either way, you know, if people find out that they have tested positive for antibodies, doctors are telling them that they still need to continue social distancing and hand washing and all the same precautions that other people are taking. And so really the only difference is kind of the satisfaction of potentially knowing the answer to that question. Did I have it? More Jedkiss covers culture for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Catch up on recent episodes of Post Reports by going to our website. That's where you can find our episode archive with stories about Supreme Court decisions, the movement for racial justice, and the future of sports after COVID. They're stories that continue to be relevant today. Find all that at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with... If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say... I'm okay. When the truth is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help... They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.